You're listening to 106.9 here on Tune FM. As part of our orientation content this week, we are presenting a series of interviews with some academics, UNE staff, and UNE life personnel to help new students learn a little bit more about the study journeys at UNE and hopefully help with the adjustment period. We're going to be taking a look at the arts now, and I am thrilled to be joined by Professor Thomas Fudge, a professor from the Faculty of HASI, namely Humanity, Arts, Social Sciences and Education, within the School of Humanities, Arts and Social Sciences. Professor Fudge is essentially one of UNE's historians, with a fascination in European history and the history of Christianity. If you plan to study any history units over the course of your studies at UNE, there's a fair chance that you'll get to study under Professor Fudge's coordination. Professor Fudge, thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today. Yep, thanks Ben, nice to be here. Oh, that's wonderful. It's nice to have you here. So, off the bat, what makes history so interesting to you? History is interesting because everything has a past. Everything has a history, whether it's history itself, whether it's science, education, sport. You can't really go wrong by studying history because it presents you with the opportunity to learn skills and the past of everything so it's transferable. It's not about learning dates. It's not about memorizing things. It's coming to terms with who we are as a species, with what's happened in the past, what those implications are for the present. And I find history to just be an invigorating exploration. So I, I'm obviously not only a historian, but an enthusiast. You can certainly tell. I take it there would be some truth to the phrase, uh, those who do not learn from the mistakes of history are doomed to repeat them. Yeah, that's right. History doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it seems to. In other words, there are lessons for us to learn so that we can be better people in the present and we can help forge and form a more productive, hopefully, and constructive future. And obviously, as you just mentioned, you're an enthusiast of history, which is very clear to anybody that speaks to you. Why should students study history? Well, you should study history to learn about who we are, where we've come from, where we're going, and the study of history can prepare people for the future. So if you study history, if you get a degree in history, you might become an academic like me, but it's much broader than that. For example, you might want to work in museums or archives, public service, government. You're prepared for a whole range of opportunities, and it's the skills that you learn in the study of history that actually aids in that preparation. So there's a wide there's a wide opportunity of career fields to move into if you study history? Yeah, absolutely. And it's because of the skills you learn, not just the topics you've studied. The topics provide a context for enhancing skills and learning how to develop your own thinking. And is there one history unit that you think everyone should study here at UNA? Oh, boy. Well, uh, there's a lot of units you could study. I'll just promote my own. Go for so it. So, for example, I teach a prescribed first-year unit, History 111, called Medieval Europe. Now, people are kind of anti-Western civilization these days, and there's more to history and life than Western civilization. I admit that. However, Australia is a country that is a product in large measure of Western civilization and culture. If you don't understand the past, then you're buggered on the future. And I, I think, so anyway, we go back, what is medieval Europe? Well, it's a thousand year period between the fall of the Roman Empire 
and the dawn of the Renaissance in the 15th century. So a thousand years is a long period of time. And there's a lot of things in there that are particularly interesting. Religion, uh, that's not just Christianity, but Judaism and Islam, three of the great world religions. Big events like Vikings, Crusades, uh, the plague, the plague, absolutely, Black Death, all of these things, politics, the 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 foundation and rise of universities. Um, well, I could, I could rattle on about this for some time, but these factors are foundational. And from a unit like that, you can move into the upper division units in European history that I and a couple of my colleagues teach that take us right up into the 20th century. It's foundational. It's a building block approach. And along the way, of course, I have colleagues that teach Australian history. But Australian history, though not exclusively, is largely built upon European models for good or bad. And I think understanding those foundations helps us with where we might like to go as a civilization in the future. That's fantastic. Is it tricky to condense a thousand years of history into one trimester? Uh, absolutely, it's a huge challenge. So what I do is I pick a couple of dozen topics that I want to present to students in lecture, in tutorials, uh, I try to present opportunities for research and assessment that allow them to get outside those couple of dozen topics. I pick what I think is interesting. Uh, I mean, that's kind of what I'm paid to do. And But what I find interesting might not be what you find interesting. But by having you do some reading, you might think, wow, I didn't know anything about the plague, for example, or its antecedents or the way it has affected the more modern world. So it's a big challenge and it's a survey. Uh, obviously, when I teach Crusades, as I will in trimester three this year, I focus on a much narrower period. But if you've done medieval Europe, you'll understand the context for Crusades. You'll understand the religious history. You understand the things that were happening in <clears throat> what today we call the Near East or the Middle East. And that then contextualizes something like Crusades that's much more focused. But the broader survey is essential. I like to think of it as a scaffolding or a skeleton. You think of the human body, it's the bones. Now, all, if all you have is bones, you don't have much. And so medieval Europe gives you the bones of Western civilization, early European history, and then the muscle and the meat and the flesh can be added. And those are the in-depth subjects that one can study from our department right from the first century, or if you do ancient history even earlier, right up to the 20th and, dare I say, into the 21st century. So HIST 111 is sort of a foundation unit. You get a brief overview of a thousand years of content, and then you can choose to specialize in different directions or fields afterwards. That's right. And if you want to do early modern or modern history, uh, including Australian history, you're still building on the same foundations. So I, I think it really is fundamental and an essential period. And beyond being essential, it's just plain interesting. 
it is rather fascinating. History is, I, I myself am a, I'm a pretty big history enthusiast, nowhere near to, to your level, of course, but I, I find so much of learning about everything that came before we rocked up just absolutely fascinating on, on every single level. I would certainly encourage any students that are a little bit unsure about what to study uh, in the future or in their maybe uh, elective units to definitely give history uh, serious consideration. Now, we mentioned, obviously, HIST 111, and you spoke about the Crusades that you're teaching on later in the year. What are some other units that you're teaching this trimester, this coming trimester? Yes, the other unit that I'm teaching in trimester one is history 300 and 500. All of my upper division units are offered at the 300 and the 500. So if you have students enrolled in any of the master's programs, theoretically they could take these units at that higher level. So the one I'm teaching here is called Sex, Sin, and Heresy in Early Medieval Europe. That's a little bit misleading because we go back to the second century. But those three themes of sex, sin, and heresy, heresy being something that really fascinates me, and just in a word, it has to do with differences and dissent. See, it's very easy to go along with everybody else, whether it's the way we look, the way we speak, the way we think, or if it comes to religion, faith, and practice. And I'm really interested in those people who said, well, that's all good, right, and fair, but I've got a different idea. So what happens to these dissenters, these heretics? We don't call people heretics too much these days, but we live in a culture that's uh, fixated on difference which is kind of misleading because actually what a lot of people who are into diversity want is just more of the same or whatever they are. Well, the study of the past broadens our horizons that life is more than us. And of all we know is what we have in our heads and in our experience, then that's pretty narrow and potentially shallow. So sex, sin, and heresy are interesting topics, and we range across a few hundred years, but next week I'll be doing an intensive residential school, which is non-mandatory, for people taking that unit, and we will spend about 45 hours over five days immersed in things like sex, sin, and heresy. Sounds like a fun weekend. <laughs> yeah, it'll be great. <laughs> so for students that maybe are not familiar with that word before, could you just tell us what heresy is? Well, heresy goes back to the Greek word that means choice. It arose largely within a religious context. So let's suppose you and I are Christians or Muslims. Well, there weren't any Muslims when this started, so Jews or Christians. And we know what the church teaches, but we make a choice to follow a different trajectory. And the thing about heresy is not just the choice, it's the fact that when we are admonished by an authority figure and we decide, well, thanks for that, but no, I think I'll just stick to my own idea, it's the stubbornness that got people on that short walk to the stake where they were burned alive in the later Middle Ages. I would argue uh, in another one of my units, which is witch hunting, that heresy evolved into witch hunting. And so, as you may know, there were many people in late medieval and early modern Europe who were accused of witchcraft. 
uh, this was an imaginary crime. This was a lot of nonsense that singled out people who were different, who didn't fit social conventions and norms, and who were often burned alive in Europe, hanged in England, hanged in New England, and they are the, uh, the advanced development of heretics. It's the people who are different, who think different, who behave different. Um, we still struggle with this in the modern world. There are some people who make some of us uncomfortable because of stereotypes, because of preconceived ideas, and again, Ben, if we go back to one of the underlying reasons for studying history, it is to help us understand what humanity is and what the pitfalls have been and continue to be in our development and evolution as a species and as civilization. And I think to know the past helps us enormously because while, again, to repeat, history doesn't repeat itself, there are some circular motions. History is not motionless. And again, I commend the study of history to uh, students. But that's essentially what a heretic is, a dissenter, one who goes against the grain and does not accept social, political, or religious norms. Spot on. And then if, if for anyone that wants to learn a little bit more about heresy, again, you can study that unit, um, both as a 300 level or 500 level. So for students, again, that are studying here at UNE for the first time, that are just joining us next week as part of orientation, who maybe don't know the difference between the 100 level units, what is the difference between a 300 and a 500 level unit? Is it the course or level of study that it's taught in? Uh, yes, uh, there are prerequisites for a student who wants to take a 300 level unit. A 500 level unit is normally reserved for those who've already earned a first degree. So it's a graduate level and sometimes it's not just at the level that it's taught but it's the expectation for your assignment. So if you're doing say a research project at the 500 level it's going to be more sophisticated. You're going to have a broader and a deeper range of inquiry. You will be expected to deal with primary sources more than secondary. So if you read my books, those are secondary sources. The primary sources are the documents from the period of witch hunting, crusade, heresy, medieval Europe. And we increasingly expect students to be au fait with those materials, sophisticated thinking, more uh, look, some students are able to publish their work. Normally, these are ones at the higher level. And so there you are. For students that are just starting here this year, uh, it's highly unlikely you would be studying many 300-level units, especially in your first year, and 500-level units pretty much reserved for any sort of postgraduate study uh, that you would like to do. But uh, if you are interested in studying a history unit, obviously, both Professor Fudge and I would thoroughly recommend HIST 111 for sure. Is there anything you're currently researching or looking at at the moment? I just finished a major research project on something that occurred in the last 60 years. Oh. So it's not medieval. Um, I'm going to get back to my medieval 
interests. In fact, the next thing I'm going to do is write an essay for a collection that's being developed in France on religious wars in the 15th century. And what I have been is an epic poem that's about 10,000 words long. It was written in Latin. It was then translated into Czech. And I'm going to do an evaluation or an interpretation of that, put it into context, and this will be published uh, later this year, so I'd better get cracking on that. <laughs> Once I get T1 up and running, I've done substantial work already, but I need to write an essay using that epic poem which kind of describes this major uh, military conflict between crusaders and heretics, there we are again, that occurred in the year 1431. So that'll be my next sort of small project. Bedtime reading. Yeah, I must admit, I was a little. I was getting very excited because I thought you were going to say that you had constructed an epic <laughs> ten thousand word poem about in Latin. I was like, okay, well, uh, we need to get a copy of that when yes. it's finished. Yeah. Um, but definitely, we'll be keeping an eye out uh, for that when it gets published, hopefully later on in the year. What are some personal highlights of your academic career? Personal highlights, boy, my career uh, seems now to be interminable. It seemed like only yesterday I started, but I have been an academic for 32 years now. What are some of my highlights? Doing a PhD in medieval history at Cambridge, which required me to work in European archives, particularly in places like Prague and Vienna and some provincial repositories, but also showing up at the Vatican and uh, being admitted, uh, having followed the protocols, and being able to look at medieval manuscripts, one of which I still have the microfilm in my office. Uh, that was a real highlight because growing up as I did in a provincial area of eastern Canada, getting into Cambridge to do a PhD was a really big deal, and it never really wore off. I used to walk around town looking at these some of the medieval buildings and thinking, I can't believe I'm here. I didn't think I was smart enough to come here. And that's a good admonition for students, because here's a personal thing, Ben. I went to university at the age of 19 on academic probation. The institution didn't think I was smart enough. Now, it wasn't my intelligence. I was just a bit of a screw-off in school. Didn't apply myself. So students who think, maybe you're not up to it, you know what, you could be. You just need to be serious about what you want to do, be passionate. That's getting off track. So working in some of those archives, the privilege of traveling around the world, interacting with other scholars, working in archives, giving talks at conferences and special events, which I had 38 of them in 2015, which was a, a bumper year that will never recur. It just happened to be a critical 600th year in some of the research that I had done, and I was lucky enough to get the call, have research fellowships in North America, in Germany, and go and talk in, in, in strange and wonderful places like Transylvania in northern Romania. So I've gotten to travel. I've also had the really great privilege of researching and writing and publishing 20 books, 
which again I would never have imagined and I consider myself really fortunate that publishers have wanted to publish my stuff because sometimes I can be my own most severe critic. But, but these have been achievements that I don't take lightly and it doesn't happen all at once. Uh, those are some of the things that I would say plus I have loved the opportunity to interact with students. And for 32 years in North America, in New Zealand, in Australia, I have been able to front up and I prefer face-to-face -face teaching. I know we have a lot of online people and that's fine, but to be in a room with young people, they seem much younger to me now than they used to, uh, to to argue in a constructive way, to debate, to think, to be challenged. I have said for years, the one who dares to teach must never cease to learn, and I learn an awful lot from being in classrooms and tutorial rooms with students and have them challenge me on some of my thinking and interpretations. That, I would say, is certainly among the highlights of my career as an academic. That's phenomenal. Do you still enjoy teaching after all this time? I do particularly face-to-face, -face. so next week with a full five-day program, by Wednesday I will be tired, <laughs> by Wednesday I will be near catatonic, but by the weekend I will think, what a wonderful experience. This is my 12th intensive residential school, and I look forward to them with much enthusiasm, and I still love it. And for online students, obviously, that don't have the opportunity to come and study here face-to-face, -face, maybe they're located, you know, we've got students from all over Australia. Um, so for whatever reason, obviously, if you are able to make it to an intensive school, definitely consider doing so because being here on campus is a very rewarding experience and it's a good way to, to complement being online. You get to meet the people that have been teaching you for, for, for months on end. You mentioned um, before that you've published 20 books, which is incredible. Are some of those books available to students in the library here, the Dixon Library on campus or online? Uh, both. There are some of them are in Dixon, some of them are e-copies or the library has purchased an e-copy. Uh, one of the ones that's particularly useful, if I may say, because most of it isn't me, is a, a book of about 425 pages, if I recall, which are translated documents from the late medieval crusades against the Czech heretics. Now that is a book that uh, has a lot of use because the, the document or extracts thereof have been translated. I have provided some introductory comments. So there's some primary materials. If you don't read Latin and Czech and a bit of German in which those were written, uh, there's a collection. So yes, there are uh, resources available through Dixon and uh, I must hustle down to the library later today and get them to buy my newest book, <laughs> which is just being published this week. Oh, there you go. What's that one about? That one is called Darkness, the conversion of Anglican Armadale, 1960 to 2019. And I'm expecting that to, uh, shall we say, generate some conversation. I think I know what you mean by that. I will absolutely be jumping down to Dixon Library when that gets released. I would love to read more about Armadale. So I'd imagine that history is something that you can never stop 
learning about no matter where you go no matter what places you visit places like say Cambridge where you know you just has hundreds of hundreds of years of history just concentrated in the area there is always more to learn and I'd imagine that's quite a, an exciting thing about a topic like history yeah that's right it doesn't matter what your topic is mine happens to be medieval Europe and you go to Europe and you're right there are some towns and cities that are virtual outdoor museums. The architecture, in parts, can go back a thousand years. Now that's fairly rare, but it's not unheard of for seven, eight hundred year old cathedrals and buildings. Then you go into archives. Do you know that in the Vatican library and repositories, and there are several archives there, it's not just the Vatican Library, there's the Vatican Archives, there's the secret archives, there's the archives of the Inquisition, etc. There are things in some of those vaults that have never been cataloged, which means that as a scholar, if you can get access to some of these places, there are materials that continue to be discovered. So it's not just what you see, it's what you might find, it's what you might find inside the bindings of a medieval book. I gave a talk a few years ago in one of our seminars about manuscripts that had been used to bind later books. And somebody got looking in there. So yes, history is a dynamic, living topic, and it is something that you can continue to learn about for your entire life. And some of the campuses, especially over in um, over in the, the United Kingdom, I believe, there's, I believe it's Oxford that's coming up in the next couple of years to its thousandth anniversary, which is just phenomenal. I could be, I don't quote me on that, which, whichever university it is, but it's one that's, that's not far off a thousand, and I would love to be a fly on the wall during those celebrations. That would just be incredible. Now, the best part about any good interview is when the guest in question answers your questions before you've asked them, and you managed to do that because my next question was going to be, just as an example for new students as to where studying history can lead, uh, could you tell us a little bit about working in the Vatican libraries, which obviously you have done. Like, Was that, in terms of being able to just you know, being in an area that it just is so historic and has so much to tell for thousands of years of, of, of existence, were you able to gain access to, say, the secret libraries that you mentioned before? Uh, no, only, <laughs> but I didn't need to. Sure. Um, when I showed up at the Vatican, and I was a student at the time, I was doing my PhD at Cambridge, and I was seeking for a manuscript that had literally taken me uh, from the United States to Cambridge, to Oxford, to Prague, to Budapest, Hungary, because it was of Hungarian origin, and finally to the Vatican. I showed up, and I had a letter of introduction, and I was admitted to the office of the keeper of the manuscripts, and he said to me, well, how do you know if we have it? And I said, well, it's a Vatican manuscript. He said, yeah, but we've got the Vatican Library, the Vatican Archives, the Secret Archives, and rattled off three or four more other things. And I thought, oh, give me a break. And he said, would you happen to know the manuscript shelf number? And I said, yes, VATLAT7307. See, I still remember it. Yeah. And he said, well, that's ours. That's Vatican. And so... Uh, that was the thing I really wanted to study, and, and I did. So I didn't have to get into some of these other repositories. 
one of which has only been open to scholars since the late 1990s. So this was before that, and so I absolutely would not have gotten in. And as you might appreciate, they're not just going to let people go in to the manuscript rooms. I don't think any repository does this because the potential for damaging a medieval manuscript, even just turning a page, and I have turned pages where it's just flaked off. Just crumbled. And so if you think, how many times does it turn before it's gone? So a lot of times now, they want to digitalize manuscripts. And I did talk my way into the National Library of the Czech Republic a few years ago to actually see a manuscript in situ that I had studied as a student. And I was finishing the translation of a chronicle and I wrote this plaintiff email to the keeper of the manuscript saying, oh, look, I, I studied this 30 years ago and I'd like to just come back and see the thing again, not just the digitalized version. So they made an exception. Uh, and it was kind of fun just to hold again in my hands something that was uh, 600 years old. I should imagine that would have been exceptionally rewarding to be actually holding yeah. something that you had studied y years ago. And I'm just... Uh blown away by the fact that you were able to just casually talk yourself into the <laughs> National Library. <laughs> that is quite remarkable. And how, because you mentioned obviously the fragility of some of these mm. documents, like things that have been around for thousands of years just dissolving in your hands. Is How do you, when you're holding a manuscript like that, is there a specific way that you have to that you have to turn pages or hold them? I would imagine you'd have to wear gloves. There would be a yep. an immense process. Yes, um, I remember my first day in the Austrian National Library in Vienna when I was a PhD student and being taken into a special room. I had ordered the manuscripts in advance and I was shown I did have to wear gloves. You cannot have a pen in the room. You can have a pencil. Uh, ink is much more difficult to remove than a bit of lead. And they had the manuscript, which was quite thick, a bit of a cushion so you would lean it up against so you didn't break the binding and then you were shown how to turn the page sort of with your thumb and your index finger don't grab it up in the middle and turn it very gently and settle it down and a piece piece of some kind of plastic screen to lay over the page because what happens if you sneeze or cough and once again you have to remember that Occasionally, the manuscript you're looking at is the only one in existence. And if it is not the only one, it is different. They will have been copied by different scribes, different hands, different marginal comments, perhaps different uh, drawings or illuminations. The text might be the same. So there's a preciousness, there's a fragility that really demands respect and care because if it's ruined, you have just eliminated something of history that can't be replaced. And you would not want to be the poor scholar that has accidentally destroyed one of the only, well, the only copy of, of a document that existed thousands of years ago. That would be quite a, yeah. quite a horrendous feeling. So there's a lot of conventions, there's a lot of protocols around these things, <clears throat> and there are some manuscripts you just don't get to see. Sure. Uh, I came very close to seeing a national treasure in the National Museum Library manuscripts collection in Prague. 
And at the last minute, <clears throat> the person with the most say-so said no. What was the? What was it? What was the? It, it was a little codex, which is a collection of things. It dates from about 1490. It's an illuminated manuscript. So the illuminations are terrific. And about 15 years ago, they produced a facsimile, which I bought. Uh, and I have it in my office. And it looks like the real thing. But again, the rarity, it's the only copy. And it's just I knew one of the, the fellows that worked in the manuscripts area, and he had arranged for me to see it. But at the last minute, his boss said, uh-uh. And I suppose I was disappointed, but in retrospect, I could see the wisdom. This is kept in a climate-controlled safe in the bowels of the building. So if the building were hit by a bomb, the, the things way down underground would be preserved. And a great deal of care must be taken by archivists. Uh, I might have settled for being taken downstairs uh, with, with armed guards just to have a look at it, but no, I was told to look at the, uh, uh, the facsimile. Now they would have a digitalized version. Couldn't quite talk yourself into that one. No, that one, uh, I was not successful. And you also, just to pivot back to some of the UNE uh, content that you teach, you also teach a very famous witch hunting unit here at UNE. And I noticed that in the research I was doing that uh, some of the research that you have done in the past was about modern day, uh, the, I guess the modern day evolution of witch hunting. So is witch hunting something that still persists nowadays in parts of the world? Absolutely. Wow. Um, uh, this is probably one of the most fruitful teaching areas in terms of HDR students. So these are the people who want to come on and say, do a Master of Philosophy or a PhD. I have a PhD student right now who is just about to write her conclusion to her thesis. So she's got a couple of, no, less than two months. She will be finished. The thesis will go in for examination. Witch hunting is a phenomenon that is transcultural that can be found around the world. This is not something I have studied, but I am told that more people have been executed for the crime of witchcraft in the 20th century around the world than at any other period in history, which is really quite phenomenal. Uh, the foundations of witch hunting are certainly with us today when we see people sacked from academic positions because of their ideas. We see people in, in our society who are imprisoned, who are marginalized. We, we don't burn people anymore, but we will sacrifice them upon the altars of political correctness and political expediency, and that might be just as bad as being killed. When your career is ruined because of your ideas, your thoughts, See, the university, Ben, should be the marketplace for the free exchange of ideas. Not just my ideas, not just yours, but yours and mine and everybody else's, where I don't force you to accept my point of view. So I, I will mark an essay and say at the end, I don't agree with a single thing that you've said, but you have a good argument. You've advanced evidence, there's logic, there's reason, and give them a high distinction mark, even though I personally don't approve. It's not a matter of me approving. The university expects me to maintain proper academic standards, to teach you, to teach students how to think, but not what to think. And, and this, this is a battleground because there are people today 
who are teaching students to be offended. One of the biggest enemies of academia would be echo chambers. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that we should resist uh, categories. We should resist being forced to think in certain ways and to reach certain conclusions. There are principles that we should all, I think, adhere to, like toleration, but that doesn't mean that we all have to be cookie-cutter type students where we all think the same, look the same, act the same, write the same way. I, I think one of the great glories of history is learning about diversity and different ideas and once in a while thinking, you know, that was a thousand years ago, but that was a really good idea. Maybe we should take that seriously. I must admit, that would be probably my favorite uh, marking comment that I would ever get on an essay. Uh, 90 out of 100, high distinction. Everything was done perfectly, very well argued, but I don't agree with anything yeah. you said. That yeah. would be absolutely marvelous. Yeah. Yeah. And for students who are um, coming to UNE and who are, are maybe feeling a little bit overwhelmed about the processes of studying and whatnot, you have a little bit of experience as uh, an academic misconduct officer. Can you mm. give any advice for students as to how to avoid accidentally committing academic misconduct? Yes. Um, the first thing is to really pay attention to what your lecturers are telling you and what hopefully is available on the MyLearn uh, platforms. That's our, used to be Moodle, now it's MyLearn. This is where all of the information about a unit is at. The university requires students to take the academic misconduct module before you can actually access certain things in MyLearn or hand in your assignments. It's really important to take that seriously. I make my PhD students do it, just as a refresher, because it is possible to make mistakes. Uh, there's been some high-profile people who have resigned their positions recently in the United States, the president of Harvard, for example. Now, I haven't investigated this. From what I read, I think there's a little bit perhaps of a witch hunt going on there, but notwithstanding, there were irregularities found. So the thing to do is to make sure that when in doubt, you ask. No question is too stupid. Ask your lecturer, ask your tutor, is this proper procedure? So if you're using somebody's words, you need to acknowledge that. You put quote marks around whatever it is. If I'm going to quote you, Ben, I need to put quote marks. If I don't use your words, but I use something you said in my own words, I still need to credit that. Not with the quote marks, but the footnote that says, interview conversation with Ben on such and such a date. That covers me and protects you. So I think these are skills that we endeavor to teach and when in doubt, reference. I would rather say to a student, you have over-referenced things as opposed to you have committed inadvertent plagiarism. Mm. And a lot of it is inadvertent. And sometimes it's laziness on the part of the student. Sometimes perhaps they haven't been instructed properly. But plagiarism essentially is stealing, even if you didn't mean to. It's theft and it's a form of dishonesty, intellectual dishonesty, plus you're taking that which does not belong to you, the words or the ideas of somebody else. So you ask yourself, well, how would you feel if somebody stole your words or your ideas 
you wouldn't like it. It'd be like if you were an artist and you'd created, well, the 10,000-word epic poem or this wonderful fresco, and I take it and put my name on it. You'd feel really kind of violated. So uh, most plagiarism doesn't come to that threshold, but bad habits in the beginning can yield serious consequences down the road. So ask, pay attention, be diligent. And as Professor Fudge said, it is extraordinarily easy to to accidentally uh, commit academic misconduct. And there are a lot of resources out there for new students to uh, get their heads around how to reference correctly. As Professor Fudge mentioned, the academic integrity module is something that everybody needs to do. And my personal advice, um, because we're seeing a lot of it nowadays, don't submit an assessment that ChatGPT has written for you. That's just not going to end well. And you will likely get found out, which would be very much not good. Uh, finally, Professor Fudge, what is your favorite thing about teaching here at UNE? What is the your mo- your biggest uh, perk of being here at the University of New England? In terms of teaching, I would have to say my intensive residential schools. I have met some wonderful people over the last 12 years. There are people who will come up here from rural South Australia, from Hobart, Melbourne, Sydney, Queensland, other places I've never heard of, small towns here and there. And people are wonderful. Um, I learn so much from them. It's intense. Most of them come really prepared. They're eager. You, you don't fly up here from Hobart or drive your car from rural South Australia as somebody did in October all the way up here. you got to pay for your accommodation. So we have them over two nights of the week and feed them. I mean, I, I've grilled for 30, 35 students at the house. It's an opportunity not only to stimulate intellectually but get to know people on a one-on-one basis there are people who come to these things who have become friends uh they, they now study together online or they find out they live three blocks from each other in sydney or somewhere this is really rewarding and it's a lot of work a lot of effort but i would say hands down I I so enjoy doing these twice a year that I'd be loath to give them up. That's fantastic. And is there any intensives that you've got coming up later in the year for students that are studying maybe online that could attend if they're studying one of your units? Yes, in trimester three, in week one of trimester three, whatever those dates are in October, I will be running an intensive residential school on the Crusades. And uh, so I haven't started thinking about that, but those have been well attended in the past. Oh, and I should say, the first time I taught Crusades, I appeared the first day in chain mail, dressed as a medieval Templar knight, much to the shock of some of my colleagues as I clanked down the hall and to the students, but it was kind of fun. That would and be fantastic. Yeah, I took the helmet off and passed it around and said, just feel how heavy this thing is. Uh, you imagine these guys were wearing stuff like this in the heat of the Levant in what is today Jordan, Israel, Lebanon, and my goodness, and I'm exhausted just walking down the stairs with this stuff on. Where on earth did you get that? I borrowed those uh, uh, costume and armor and so on from a fellow here in town who I'd been put in touch with by somebody else who is part of the medieval reenactors. 
And I have given some thought, Ben, haven't acted yet, to seeing if those guys might do something for us as part of the Res School in October, mm. because they all like to dress up and get their swords out. and Do a little uh, reenactment of a, of a conflict. A, a little reenactment might be kind of fun for all of us to go over to the Pine Forest and just uh, have a look and, and see. So there are things that I do with Red Schools that are not just in the classroom. In October, I took a group of students an hour and a half northwest of here to a Bruderhof, a religious community. There's 230 people who live there, and we spent the day just looking at the things that we'd read about from the 16th century that are happening right here in Australia. That's incredible. I really, really hope that they that, that medieval reenactment group can come up now. We've got King Richard versus yeah. Saladin live at the live here at UNE. Absolutely. And so uh, I was actually, I was kind of hoping you were going to say you owned it. I was going to say, right, next time Professor Fudge comes in for an interview, he'll be in full medieval armor. That would be fantastic. <laughs> um, I would love to keep talking. As a history, someone that enjoys history myself, I would absolutely love to chat to you for another three hours but unfortunately <laughs> it looks like we're going to have to wrap things up here is there anything else that you wanted to pass on to our incoming cohort yes i would say two things get to know your lecturers whether you're online or on campus get to know the people who are teaching you get to know some of the relevant administration staff like trish wright is the course manager she knows everything uh, she can help you through your program with progression on all those kinds of things reach out to me i love seeing students and am delighted when there's a knock at the door and my door is almost always open and somebody wants to just come in to have a chat uh, take advantage of the opportunity that you have here at UNE. Uh, most of us will only do <clears throat> one degree. Some people do several bachelor's degrees, but take advantage of the time. History is one of the areas that we do quite well in here at UNE. And if I may say so, medieval history is one of the jewels in the crown. So t take advantage of it. Come, get ready to think. Get ready to be stimulated. Get ready to learn and prepare to be all that you can be, and I hope I can say that UNE will do its part in helping you prepare for whatever the next chapter is in your life. Professor Fudge, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thanks, Ben. You've been listening to 106.9 Tune FM here on the home of UNE's student-powered radio.